What's happening, weirdos? This is a very special edition of We Made It Weird. Not only is Sweet Lady Val here, as always, but we have Anne Lamott, one of the most incredible authors, I'm going to say, of all time, and a true inspiration to both me and Valerie, and also her partner, Neil Allen, who is also a truly gifted and incredible author, and in this podcast alone, said two things that I think have forever changed my life. Neil has a new book called Better Days, Tame Your Inner Critic, which is out now with a forward by Anne. Uh, That's Leela in the background. I am solo parenting and she is homesick. (laughs) But this book is incredible. It's all about the superego. It's all about quieting that unhelpful voice that maybe was helpful when we were five years old, but is not so helpful now. It is wonderful psychologically. It's wonderful creatively. And honestly... Bless you, baby. There's two parts of this podcast that you guys are about to hear that absolutely in the days following have been something that I've just been implementing in my practice, and it has been making it better with less anxiety, less worry. So I'm very excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Uh, Only a couple things to plug. Go to Largo-LA.com for tickets to my monthly Largo show here in LA, PeteHolmes.com for tickets to every other tour date. And Katie, please run those uh, pre-roll ads. This episode is brought to us by our friends at Ritual. For years, guys, I had gaps in my diet, nutrient gaps. Whenever I went to the doctor for my checkup every year, they told me all the things I was deficient in. Thank God I found Ritual, the simple, traceable, gap-filling once-a-day multivitamin, which is better than multivitamins I've tried in the past for so many reasons. First of all, I fast. So the fact that Ritual is gentle on an empty stomach is huge. And the reason for this is that it doesn't start breaking down until it's in your low intestine, which is also where nutrients can actually be absorbed. So it's gentle on your stomach, but it also gets into your system. So if you're like me and you've taken Maltese in the past and you get the feeling that you're just peeing it out and your pee is bright yellow like predator blood and you're like, this is a waste, Ritual has got you covered. They figured it out. And men, guys, you need this more than ever. You want Ritual on your team to fill those gaps with 10 key nutrients. According to the CDC, fewer men than women meet the daily minimum for fruit and vegetable consumption and are more likely to overvalue exercise and undervalue nutrition. So get Ritual into your life. I've been taking it for years. Every morning I take Essential for Men. gets me ready to start my day feeling confident that my body has all that it needs. And I take their Symbiotic Plus for my gut health, which of course your gut is like a second brain. You gotta feed it. It's huge. Ritual is vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO, and major allergen-free. So get Essential for Men, quality multivitamin from a company you can actually trust. Get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash weird. Start Ritual or add Essential for Men to your subscription today. That's ritual.com for 20 slash weird. <laughs> ritual.com slash weird for 20% off. This episode is also brought to us by our friends at Next Evo, my favorite CBD. The new year is a perfect time to move on from things that just aren't working in your life. With Next Evo Natural CBD products, oil-based CBD can be one of them. You know I love CBD to relax, to recover, to deal with stress, or to help my sleep. And CBD is a plant-based game changer in my life. But not all CBDs are created equal. Oil-based CBD doesn't mix well with our water-based bodies, so you absorb as low as 6% of the CBD on the label. 6%. 
Next Evo Naturals has figured this out. They developed a clinically tested water-soluble form of CBD, and their gummies and capsules are proven to work faster and absorb four times better than oil-based products. Their stress gummies are a life changer for me. I have them in my travel bag. They're in my cupboard. They help me manage and cope with stress quickly and effectively. It's so wonderful to have something plant-based that is good for you, helping you manage stress that is natural. And now, try their strongest gummy ever, the new Extra Strength Daily Wellness CBD gummies, which customers and I personally love, or try the all-time bestsellers, their stress gummies, which I love, or dissolvable powders, which I've just started adding to my smoothie in the morning, especially after a workout to aid in recovery. So leave oil behind and start the new year with a more effective and fast-acting CBD from Next Evo Naturals, from Next Evo Naturals. Get 25% off any order or up to 60% off as a new subscriber by using code WEIRD at nextevo.com. That's 25% off your order or up to 60% off a new subscription at nextevo.com with promo code WEIRD. All right, everybody. Enjoy this wonderful, wonderful chat. I really hope you like it as much as I did. I went in kind of tight. I came out spacious, loose, happy, and check out Better Days for more on this wonderful topic. Leela, can you say get into it? Get into it. Perfect. Hello, well, hello everybody. Welcome hello. back to the show. Hi, Neil. Hi. Look how short I look. I know. Do you want, you know what you can do? I we'll put to... this under you. Okay. And take yeah. it up under me. And I look those. like Danny DeVito. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we had to do all of this. Yeah. I feel so <laughs> short. Well, you look is, about a head taller than me. Hi. Hi, <laughs> Honestly, if I, this is all that happens, I, I think it's going to be a hit. It's <laughs> a hit. Just watching you prep for the podcast is enjoyable. <laughs> it's a hit, you two nuts. Where Where are you? <laughs> is this Neil's office? office? Yeah. yeah. Nice. That, that poster um, of the Beatles yeah. is a... I, I, um, Another copy. It's 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 vintage. It's real, of exactly the poster I had in my room from when oh. I was nine until I outgrew it when I was thirteen. That oh. came from Beetle Fan Magazine, and yeah, uh, that's and a I treasure. found it on eBay years ago and got it framed and. Wow, that's a great idea to find the posters from your childhood. There's like. A very specific nostalgia that's attached well, to all those posters. Yeah, that's- they got they got replaced by a brawless Janice Joplin. Right? Sure, that's <laughs> the only Janice we knew. Let's let's look for that one on eBay. Yeah, I bet that exists. <laughs> what are we going to talk about today? What's the? Do we have a plan? I mean, I think we're our plan usually is to to just chat, and then we'll definitely bring up literally bring up the book (laughs) well we're we're, we're, this is the show there's no oh yeah and pete never never tells when we're recording so we are recording join okay well but a lot of people do a little chat and then they well then then we have to redo everything (laughs) that was the worst possible me i need to be the best possible me for you for your sake that's your super ego telling you yeah really (laughs) I don't have a super ego. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that sounds just like a super ego to say that. <laughs> That's actually funny. In your relationship, you wrote this book called Better Days, which is wonderful. It's called, uh, the subtitle is Tame Your Inner Critic. It's wonderful. Uh, Val and I have both been enjoying it. Val's much further in. We actually I. each have our own copy. Yeah, there so. you go. <laughs> cool. And thank you for sending it in such a nice package as well with um, uh, candy and a ribbon, <laughs> which I really appreciate. It was a very nice sweet. Touch. Lila liked that. Necco, Necco candy from my child. Yeah, the, the only candy that tastes like an antibiotic. I appreciate that because <laughs> I felt like you were really healing does. me on uh, two levels. Why <laughs> Necco candy? Is that in the book? Yeah. No, no, no. It's just my childhood. It was, it was. Uh, those were grim days. Candy technology has improved. Necco candy is like what you put around other candy to ship it safely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, ne- ne- nostalgia is from the Greek for the pain of going home. Right? Yeah. And for me, Necco is the part of going home that isn't painful. Mm-hmm. It, it's candy. Yeah. yeah. Have you had a skittle? <laughs> have you walked down M&M lane? <laughs> Any of this? Uh, we have tales about M&Ms. Uh, I don't actually consider Necco to be a uh, food product. But, uh, <laughs> it's like a disc that you would insert in, at, at the arcade. It is. It's <laughs> to a token. To get an extra three minutes. Yeah, it's a token. <laughs> yeah. But the gesture was still appreciated. <laughs> you didn't know you were going to get roasted for your. I didn't. Generous... <laughs> I, I I didn't know that I had to have a hierarchy of candy. Yeah, <laughs> there is a hierarchy. hierarchy. Is Necco really your favorite candy? Yeah, it actually is. It's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will. I, it is impossible for me to open a packet of Neckos without eating every one of them. Uh, and I actually, I actually have a spiritual story about Neckos. Oh, yeah. it's a, it's a, it might be a boring story. It might not. You decide. I, <laughs> when I was uh, engaged in a spiritual community, a mystery school that took me into all sorts of kind of um, bizarre metaphysical states, we'll call them. There was one time when apparently I hadn't intended this. I was exploring what is direct taste and 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 I've read about it since and this is what people who are taste testers have they have an ability to turn off the blend of tastes and yeah. feel the individual and and identify the individual reactions between your what six you know different taste buds yeah. sweet mm-hmm. sour umami whatever they all are bitter salty <laughs> yeah and for a couple of weeks, for some reason, I came into that experience. And so I was tasting food, not in its blended form, but in its individual components. Wow. And one thing I learned about uh, Neckos was that the dark kind of purple Necco that is, it's not licorice. It's like, a I've forgotten what the flavor is. Um, it's like coffin flavor. Yeah, coffin Yeah, flavor. coffin lining, it, maybe. It turns out. To mix the 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 to get to that taste, there's a a very strong, awful, bitter, completely bitter component to it. Okay, well, that, that kind of finally. that kind of overrode all the other all the sweetness to it, and it was just fascinating mm-hmm. to realize 
wow, even the sweetest things like sugary things in life mm-hmm. might actually be a blend of, of contradictory tastes. and Like contradictory. perfume, like there's usually like a bad smell in a perfume. Yeah. That's yeah. very interesting. You just said, first of all, anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about, Necco wafers come in like a sort of a, a wax paper wrapper and they're little yeah. circles. They look like the dehydrated nipples of dead witches. And they <laughs> or, taste kind of like that as well. Or, or, or they look like Tums. <laughs> they look like Tums. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. have you yeah. ever wanted a Tum that doesn't help with your heartburn? That's a Necco wafer. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's the opposite of a Tum. It increases your chances for heartburn. <laughs> That's exactly right. What was this? I, I do want to get to both of you, but you mentioned being in a mystery school. What was that? Were you doing breath work, meditation? Were you in a cave? What happened? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was a... Uh, um, a serious um, kind of school that uh, it's called Diamond Heart. Um, and sometimes it's called the Ridwan School. And it's there's this modern master named Hamid Ali who writes prolifically um, books under the pseudonym A.H. Almas. And he's kind of the, uh, what do you, who was, um, um, I'm getting old. And I slip and I forget things. Um, (laughs) William James. He's kind of William James was a turn of the century writer, Henry James brother, who who wrote the varieties of religious experience. And this guy who I studied under, I studied under him and these other teachers who he had trained in his program. um, This guy has studied all the varieties of spiritual experience. experiences in the world and has studied them kind of uh, scientifically and and with a great deal of uh, uh, focused attention. And so he kind of knows a hell of a lot about Hinduism and Sufism and Buddhism and shamanism and thisism and thatism and Christianity and Judaism. And he's got his, you know, Ramana Maharshi uh, part, and he's got his Sri Nizargadatta part, and he, all of these kind of masters of Eastern and, and Western traditions he knows a lot about. And he kind of came up with a method out of all of those sorts of studies with a method of working on the obstacles of the ego that is a progressive path to the removal of the obstacles of the ego. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a weakness in most of the spiritual um, methodologies is the the self-inquiry part. You're kind of left to yourself, right? Your, Your ego, you're told, you know, don't pay, you know, pay a particular kind of attention to it and just work on it. And there's there, he developed a very uh, specific methodology for moving through the issues of the ego one by one. And so I did that with him for a few years and it's, it, it lent me a certain amount of freedom and a whole lot of what I bring out into the world. I learned there, there are other places that I learned pieces of it, mm-hmm. but he, he, he's got this little community of people, maybe at any one time, there are 5,000 people in the world who are, who are kind of studying his method, but he keeps it a very closed system. So you don't read about it. You don't hear about it because, you know, this is what gurus do. They want to keep the purity of their system. And there's a certain benefit to that, to keep it kind of pure and unadulterated and un, it, not popularize it in a certain way, mm. and keep a kind of rigorousness to it. And so I did that for a few few years. I think I was in it off and on for five or six years. 
That's so interesting. What is one of the obstacles to the ego? And and what did you do to weed it out? Oh, you want to talk about my book because that's really what the book <laughs> is. That, is so that your you... inner critic is the when people say lose your ego, um, they're really talking about the part of the ego that's social, right? So you don't lose your your the ego that is your survival skills, right? Your inside mm -hmm. in, in the classic Freudian terminology, you don't learn your you don't lose the part of your ego that's instinctual. You don't lose your libido and you don't lose your survival skills. What you lose, what you're intended to lose when people say lose your ego is your social hangups. And your social hangups are culturally derived by human law, right? And so human law, the, the rubric is natural law um, allows and human law restricts. And so um, in our natural state, we can be we can do and be whatever we want. There's no morality to our natural state, right? Mm -hmm. There may be an implicit morality that pack animals serve the pack and we're a pack animal. And so we're rigged to serve the pack, but it's not an, it's not a restraining morality. It's, it acts as if it's instinctual instead of living that way as human beings, we have rules, human rules, and those human rules tell us that we're supposed to be good or bad, right or wrong. And once we're paying attention to those things, we're separating ourselves from everything because we're judging. And so we think of being judgmental as being negative about things. Well, you're just as judgmental when you say, oh, you're really smart, right? Mm -hmm. That's a judgmental state statement. It's saying there's something better about being smart than not being smart. And I admire you for that. I'm objectifying you. And if I say you're beautiful, I'm also objectifying you, right? Mm -hmm. I'm turning you into a separate object from me that's different from me. Mm. So the ego is all the things that I prop up in front of myself to make myself look good to other people so that they will say I'm smart or I'm beautiful or I'm worthwhile or I'm lovable or I'm this or I'm that. Mm. So and it's the whole, whole Megillah. And you're doing that because the superego is telling you you need to be this way yeah. to survive and fit in and yeah. be accepted. And yeah. yeah, it's so interesting because I, it's funny to think of it now after reading your book that the way it was taught to me, at least, was that, uh, you know, the it is the bad one. It's a disgusting animal and never listen to that one. The mm -hmm. ego is slightly better but still like vain and and you know misguided and yeah. thank god we have the super ego which is our guiding angel that yeah. will tell us how to be good and now after reading your book i thought of that and i thought it sounds like propaganda from the super ego like that was the super ego's perspective on yeah. what was being taught was i'm the one to listen to and just don't pay attention to anything else yeah, it was essentially, from my way of looking at it, just an, a, a, a natural and obvious mistake that Freud made, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. he replicated the bad seed myth that's written into Genesis, right? That mm -hmm. we're, we were fine until we got knowledge and judgment, and then we became contaminated with original sin, and original sin means that we are um, hateful and selfish, right? Mm -hmm. And 
So the the Freudian version of it is we have, and it, and it's and it's evident in what he labeled the instinct. So n- normally nowadays people have the sense to call it a survival instinct and a libido instinct, mm-hmm. and he called it a death instinct. Right, mm-hmm. the survival instinct. Instead of calling it a survival instinct, he called it a death instinct, and implied in that is that I am homicidal. Right, mm-hmm. and he believed that we were homicidal, predatorial, rapacious by nature, and rapacious mm-hmm. by nature. And so our instincts had to be controlled, or mm-hmm. we would uh, end up in ruin, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't be able to survive as a species or something, right? I have no idea where he actually took that, but he thought that individually we were bad seeds. Mm-hmm. Um the problem with that is that nobody ever really tested it, right? So the idea was that I use my superego, my socializing sense, to prevent myself from being homicidal, to restrain mm-hmm. myself from the worst possible uh, behaviors. And it turns out, actually, we're not bad seeds, that the superego, by the time you're 17, has finished whatever job it might have had to kind of teach you what the rules are to engage socially as human beings, and that I can push it to the side, if I can, that Mm -hmm. I'll discover that, oh, that morality is so fully integrated into me that I can operate out of it all the time. And by the way, Mm. except for the occasional time when there is a rattlesnake on the trail in front of me, Mm. I'm not in survival. I'm never in survival most Mm -hmm. days. I never have an actual survival issue presenting itself because civilization provides virtually everybody with food, shelter, and clothing and safety um, on a day-by-day basis. Mm. Uh, Poor, rich, doesn't matter. You're going to get food, shelter, clothing, and safety, right? Mm-hmm. Most days, most of the time. So where is where is the battle with my homicidal survival issue? There isn't one. Mm-hmm. Yes, there simply I, isn't one. I'm I not under- homicidal by nature. Right. I underlined that when you said something about if you how do you know it's the, the voice of the superego? And you, and it was, if you feel like you're in danger and you're not literally standing in front of a coiled snake. And I'm mm. like, wow, that's so often my state. So, so superego is that irrational fear? I mean, it, it's well, misfiring? It's, uh, no, it, 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 sir. So the superego kind of arrives mm-hmm. uh, and it r- arrives whether you're born in Senegal or India or the United States of America, it arrives at around when you're around when you're six years old. Before you're six years old, you're actually not learning very much by cause and effect and pattern recognition. You're learning primarily the same way a dog learns, right? Mm-hmm. By association with a pleasurable reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Or a painful reaction. And you you have a little bit of cause and effect, but a, a lot less than your parents think when you're. That's five really apropos. That's what we're dealing with yeah. right now, yeah. as parents. Is we we take Leela to Taekwondo. This is our daughter. She's five. She's five. Yeah, and she loves Taekwondo, and she will scream and resist and and do anything she can to not go. Yeah. And we're tr- we're talking to her. We're like. We're on your side. We like you. We want you to have exciting and fun things. And you like 
You yeah. like Taekwondo. And then she goes and she loves it. And then I'm saying like, can we try to remember this? Like remember <laughs> this state that you're in right now, that you're happy and you saw your friends and you got to kick and punch and you loved it. But then like the next time it's like, it's kind of all over and it's every morning yeah. going to school. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I'm like, cause and effect. She doesn't really yet have a grasp of like, we go to school and you know that happy feeling you get when I pick you up. It's not just because it's over. It's because you had this time with your friends and learning and stuff. But she doesn't have any of any of that, really. Yeah, she's not storing memories because she doesn't have to because adults are hovering over her and keeping her on a good, safe leash. So she never is in the position of making a fateful decision. Yeah. And, yeah. and so she doesn't need cause and effect um, and postmortems. You never hear a little kid going, boy, I really regret having, you know, <laughs> hit my brother, right? Yeah. You'll, you'll see him say, oh, I'm sorry. But that's like, because they know that they're forced no, to say, I'm you've sorry. You've just hit yes. on, that yes. is a that's you. one of the more interesting phenomenons of being a parent is what, first of all, we teach them to do things that we love doing, like don't exclude. And then cut to me in line for a VIP lounge at the airport. Like all we do is exclude and we love exclusion kind of to the exclusion of all else. We love exclusion. So we're full of shit. And two, we also tell them to apologize or check in. We're kind of telling them to care before. I don't know if it's before you work with Sunday school kids. I don't know when it shows up. When do they actually care? But right now I feel like I'm teaching a very fluid, amorphous shapes and colors of energy being like, you should say you're sorry because you should feel bad. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the, my number one question. It's the top of my list is what can we do as parents? Hmm. Because so many people, people's voice, like their voice of their superego is their mother. Well, let me interrupt first. Why don't you finish what you were saying about what the superego actually is, the parasite and why it arrives? Oh, I didn't care about that. <laughs> that was unimportant to me. Oh my so let's God. just go to what I asked. <laughs> I'm sorry. So you're, so you're basically goofily, goofily present as a little kid. And mm -hmm. virtually all little kids are goofily present. And by the way, you notice that even though we think we have to be morally instructive of the little kids because... They don't have an obvious morality kind of jumping out of them. You'll also notice they're rigged to the good, right? There isn't a three-year-old who hasn't given away two peanut butter sandwiches before re realizing, oh, I'm left without a peanut butter sandwich, right? <laughs> they, you, you recognize how little kids are just astonished at the idea of unfairness, right? Mm -hmm. They just can't grok it. They can't figure out, they're so totally, they just assume things are fair. They're fair. The world's fair. It's got to be fair. You're fair with stuff. Yeah, I suck at sharing, but I understand that the world is fair, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a perfect system, but it's a rig to the good system. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in yourself if you remember in or see yourself as a three-year-old or a four-year-old. Those, those little beings are pretty rigged to the good. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they can make bad mistakes. And when they're six, and they haven't yet developed very much pattern recognition yet, they aren't used to um, cause and effect. They aren't used to regretting things. They aren't used to predicting the future. They're, they're still more or less in a, in a state of presence. 
we take the leash off of them. And we say, oh, you and your friend can cross a busy street. You just have to, I have to be convinced that you know how to look both ways. And so I've guided you and shown you and guided you and shown you. And then all of a sudden, the kid is right at the curb and you're not there to guide and show you. And the kid hasn't developed very much pattern recognition. Well, fortunately for our survival as mm -hmm. little kids growing up to be adults, a little voice shows up. And the voice says, hey, idiot, look both ways. Don't you remember? Right? Mm -hmm. And that's all it's there for right? At first. Its first job is to accompany you as a pretense of an absent parent who has a voice to remind you in when you're in a dangerous, fateful decision where you're very survival. If you don't get crossing, looking both ways right, you can get creamed, mm -hmm. right? And so it's a good thing we get it. The, the, mm -hmm. There's no question that the superego is wonderful, and it's an addition that's necessary in civilization, right? You don't have cars and stuff, and you don't have in a in a in a small tribal Stone Age community. Um, there's very little need need for that, right? There there is a uh, at six, you're not expected yet to go out and um, uh, Put yourself in the in the in the path of a predatory animal. They, you know, you you grow up within the small community, looked over until you're 13, right? Mm -hmm. And by the time you're 13, you've developed pattern recognition through some other tools, right? And and you're able to go out alone. But in civilization, we expect people to start to mature and go out and feel some independence, right? 15 minutes outside of the uh um, close watch of an adult, of an adult um, uh, when they're six. And at the same time that the superego comes in and does that, you show up in first grade. And first grade's a lot different from elementary school because the same idea that now it's time to let off the leash is the idea now it's time that you start to mature. Mm -hmm. So before six in kindergarten, and before kindergarten, it's kind of independent play and playstations. And if you need to pee, you tug on the teacher's skirt and say, I need to pee. And then first grade, you sit in rows and everybody does arithmetic for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. right? And you need to pee, you raise your hand and you wait and squirm in your seat until you're called on. Right. Mm -hmm. This is weird to a <laughs> six year old. Right. I don't know. Uh, you haven't faced this yet. I had four kids, and I remember that the first two weeks of first grade, those kids are exhausted and confused. Mm -hmm. Their world is just turned upside. Nobody walked up to them and said, it's all changing now. And from mm -hmm. here on in, you're learning how to be like those giant people around you. Mm -hmm. And and they were operating on a completely different level from you, and you never had to understand how they operated, but you trusted it. Well, now you have to turn yourself into one of those. Mm. And it's like, that's impossible, right? Mm -hmm. How could I do that? I have absolutely no It's They're just, you're completely confused at six. Mm -hmm. And again, the superego comes in, and this little voice in, outside or inside your head says, I got this for you. And it gives you some rudimentary strategies for how to uh, be around adults who are 
trying to teach you new rules and show you authoritative ways to get around in the world. And mostly what it teaches you how to do is to be an obedient, looking, acceptable child so that in your confusion, you'll attract the uh, teacher's attention and the teacher will go, oh, you don't understand this. I'll help you with the first step in this mm. new idea of a strategy for um, behaving like an adult. Mm. And that's very helpful too. So you've got survival skills and social skills in very rudimentary ways are being taught to you. Among the social skills are all of the things that we call right, wrong, good, bad, right? Now, you used to just be kind of doing what you wanted, getting in trouble for some of them, not really knowing why, but learning to kind of shift your behavior so you didn't get in trouble. Now you're expected to know why. And all these all these moral rules are written rules. They're they're verbal, right? And so it's no longer just knowing that that's an authority telling me to do something. It's now, oh, there's a rule that sits underneath it. There's a principle that sits underneath it. There's a pattern I have to get. And the consequence of not following it is death yeah. and exile. Yeah. And that's what you are internalizing. That yeah. if you make the single mistake, if you are different in a way that is not pleasant, death or exile, you're doomed. And mm -hmm. that's what the superego is keeping you on alert for. So the mm -hmm. superego, your inner critic, your, your absent parent, who's a benign force at this point, right? A benign to good force at six to 12 years old, right? It's mm -hmm. really helpful. And it's necessary for a civilized um, being to mature. It's always giving you negative reinforcement, right? Mm -hmm. So even though as 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 uh, we we live in an age where we're you're you're taught nonviolent communications and you're taught not to be negative with your kids and you're taught to provide um, positive reinforcement, well, that all goes out the window appropriately. For crossing the street, um, crossing the street, you want a frowning parent, right? Yeah. You want there to be a, a, a serious negative consequence if you don't look both ways to cross the street, right? Mm -hmm. Nonviolent communication goes out. It's like, idiot, look, right? Mm -hmm. That's what that's that's right. The problem is, even though that's not necessary in the social life, it's the only vocabulary that that fake person hovering over you next to you that's offering you advice has it only has a frown mm. it can only be snarky and frowning it does not have a nice gentle voice saying it'll take time and it's not really dangerous and all the kids learn the rules and eventually you'll learn the rules it's not that hard maybe you have a teacher like that maybe you're a parent like that but nobody's inner critic is like that Everybody has the same magnitude, negative inner critic with a frown. And how does that extend into, into creativity? Because for crossing the street, I get it, and yeah. that's helpful. But yeah. it seems like the premise of your book is that it bleeds a little bit into areas that it's not so welcome. Am I, well, am I... what, what happens is that it's, it, it uses up its repertoire and its usefulness by the time you're somewhere between 12 and 17. By the time you're 17, you've incorporated all the human rules that you need. Mm -hmm. In this sense, we're all moral, right? By the time we're 17, we know the rules, right? The only people who aren't 
already integrated as moral beings are sociopaths and their inner critic doesn't matter anyway. Mm -hmm. And people who have disorganized minds through mental illness, right? They may not have a sense of morality, right? Mm -hmm. But all the rest of us are perfectly moral. Moral doesn't mean I'm always going to make what other people will say is the moral decision. Moral just means I know good from bad. I know right from wrong. I know what the risks are. I know that this is how society operates. If I'm rebellious, I know I'm rebellious, mm. right? I may be rebellious sort of unconsciously, but I know the rules, right? Mm. So everybody knows the rules. So why is there a voice barking these same old hackney rules to you as if you as if you don't know them? Let mm. me interrupt. Um, because <laughs> we want to get to your first question, but it, um, I would, um, referring to Pete's question about why does it bleed into creativity? For me, Al Franken, it didn't bleed into my creativity. It became the voice on my shoulder. In Neil's book, he refers to it as a parasite, and it has been with me every step in the way of the way in everything I do without work, without yeah. really deep psycho-spiritual work. Yeah. And so I have my 20th book coming out in a few months, and writing it, I had the inner critic on my shoulder saying, God, talk about beating a dead horse or, <laughs> you know, all of the, and I know you know what I'm talking about, both of you. And without referring to Neil's work, which I, I've only known him seven and a half years, but for seven and a half years, he's taught me that I'm going to hear it. We're all going to hear it, this side of the grave. But as soon as you can identify it, you go, oh, it's just you. It's mm -hmm. not the truth of who I am as an artist. It's not the truth of who I am as a woman and a spiritual um, part of the, the community of, of seekers. It's just this inner critic that helped me not get run over at six years old. It helped me not to swim too far out to stay safe, but I don't need it at nearly 70. I didn't need it in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And then at 60, I meet Neil and I start to notice that it is my default resource. It's, mm -hmm. the, it's like a default comfort zone because I had it my, it's home. Yeah. It's home and it's a toxic comfort zone. And so what I learned to do and what we're talking about, and what we'll keep talking about is that if you do, if you get aware of it, of this parasite, you can say, oh, it's you. Mm -hmm. You need to go do something for a while. I've got um, a couple hours of writing to do. Mm -hmm. And you can break the trance yeah. and get back to your meditation, your reading, your writing, your Taekwondo. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if Leela has. Yes, I, I love that you incorporated me. And that leads to answer a question, you know, what do we do as parents? And what I tell my clients who are parents of kids who haven't haven't been launched yet is, is, well, this is a get out of jail free card because no matter what, as long as you're not beating your children to the brink of death, right? Mm -hmm. That is an exception. Or right? at all. Or at all. <laughs> but but it really, actually, you can you can even get a away reasonable with beating. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as you're not beating your children, um, they're going to have an inner critic of almost exactly the same magnitude as yeah. every other kid's inner critic. They they're they're all kind of the same. And they all kind of uh, interrupt our lives at the same pace. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of do the exact same thing. And they're all snarky. 
and they're all kind of idiotic. I can I can use words like idiot and moron and imbecile when I'm talking about my my inner critic because it is not a real person. Mm-hmm. It is a facsimile of a stern authority figure, usually a stern parent, mm-hmm. right? And it, it and it is a bully, and it is stupid. It only knows what's useful for a six-year-old to start on the way of learning the world. Right. That's interesting. Right. I, I'm, yeah. I'm having a slight bristle at that because I'm like, I, being in a creative field, I don't think anybody turns me off more than I'm going to use an unkind word, and it's not my superhero, but a dingus <laughs> who has unrefined, stupid ideas mm. that they think are great, and they go around and someone asks them about it casually. But I'm over here going, this person doesn't give a fuck. We're about to start a meeting. And they just said, oh, how's that thing going? And now next thing I know, this person's talking for 45 minutes about their dumb movie that is (laughs) a copy of nine other movies we've all already seen. And they just don't have the sense to be embarrassed. And in moments like that, I go, you know, when I'm hiring writers for a writer's room, we call it the 11 p.m. test. Would you want to be in the room with this person at 11 p.m.? And comedians are all broken in a very similar way. And one of the things that we enjoy about each other is that we're hyper-attuned. You were saying exile. What will get me exiled? What's going to kick me out of this? And also with my ideas, is this so stupid? We need to flush it. And in that case, I'm like, thank God I have an inner critic. And in fact, you know this, Val, I get really worked up when people try and come into my lane, my lane of blood and piss and sweat and spit. And I'm like, you you can co-op this and just go like, golly gee, I had an idea. Your idea sucks. Fucking beat it. And they don't know. And that's, and you know what? I don't say any of that to them. Of course, I want to be a kind person. I'll even encourage them, but nothing's going to happen from this. And we all know it. Yeah. So what about that? Uh, so you're talking about being in a complicated conflict, right? And we're all in complicated conflicts pretty regularly. And we tend to think of those conflicts the way you were describing it as win, lose, or draw. I got to win. I got to get this person out of the room. I got to get on with my life, right? Mm. And to to think of it in terms of win, lose, or draw, we have to kind of uh, belittle the other person the way we've learned how to be, be belittled ourselves. Right? Yes, that's true. And it's quite effective, and the world goes round, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But what would it be like if you didn't have the emotional content but had the exact same ideas going on in your head? It would basically be... Uh, yes, no, and maybe, instead of win, lose, or draw. Mm-hmm. And there's no emotional content to, to yes, no, or maybe, right? Mm-hmm. If if Annie and I are in a conflict, all that means is that she wants to use this space to- and time in one way, and I want to use that space and time in another way, and both things can't happen at the same time. That's all every conflict is, is mm-hmm. it's a fight over space and time. Right. If I we think of space and time as resources, whether they are or not, we think of them that way. Right. And so it's a fight over space and time. Well, that's just yes, no, or maybe. But instead, I go in with this idea that I have to win it. The only person who's telling me that I have to win and is telling me that this idea of whether we should go uh out to eat at this restaurant or that restaurant, it can be that simple, is 
um, my my inner critic telling me that if we go to that other restaurant, it will lead down a series of uh, consequential events where I'll find myself feeling unhappy at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's an accurate prediction. Maybe it isn't, right? Mm -hmm. But I react by saying, no, this is important to me. I have to do this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I have to. I need this. And I'm just wrong about that. Mm -hmm. I don't need it. I want it. That's very helpful. Mm-hmm. I, I, it doesn't really, but I might not hire them. So it does hurt oh, their life. Of course life. not. Yeah. You don't have to, you get to have all the preferences you want. You okay. just can't believe that you're making fateful decisions one by one all day long. You're actually making 80% good decisions, 20% decisions that go sideways. They're not bad. You just, you you picked a risky one. You knew there was some risk and it went sideways and you're yeah. adapting to it, right? Mm-hmm. But instead of taking it as my identity, I guess is what I'm hearing you say. Like I have to kill this person the way that I've killed my own weakness. Because I I do have a hard time with that vulnerability. Annie, it looks like you're trying to say something. Yeah. um, As you read in the book, it's like a very deep core thing inside of us that is afraid that if we ask for what we need and want we're going to get in trouble people are going people a may say no and then we lose because we're not as important as them and they get their way but in a situation like where you're handling people that are you're working with and that annoy the shit out of you it's not about um helping them get a job with you it has nothing to do with that because you get to say we're not a good match i'm sorry or you get to say you know what stop um we don't this is not how this works and 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 wrap it up and if they can't they don't get to work with you it's really not so much about that it's about like and i can especially i know val would know what i'm talking about as a woman um you have you you have to ask for so little and you have to take what's there and what's left over like my mom for instance never once ate a broken egg yolk because it would have made dad unhappy to be served the broken egg yolk and my whole life i took the broken egg yolk with every man i'd ever been with until i got sober when i was 32 now i it's, get the broken now he gets broken egg yolk mostly <laughs> but um but the thing is that there's a voice an internalized voice inside of me that says that scares me into not having my feelings, not even having the feeling that this guy's driving me crazy and I don't actually want to work with him. Mm-hmm. And if you're a woman, it's it's so internalized. It's like telling you that if you complain, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you're in trouble, you probably will lose your job and possibly your mate. Mm-hmm. And it's a voice that keeps you small and afraid mm-hmm. as a way of keeping itself alive and is and with this misguided attempt to keep you do it on the forward thrust of American culture that you have to keep doing better and better and achieving more and more and having people think that you're cooler and cooler and consequently giving you more and more money. Mm-hmm. And it's that voice that did save you. And when Neil does his work with people at the end of it, the people always say to the inner critic, 
thank you for keeping me alive when I'm a, when I was little. Yeah. But that if you're a grown person, you don't need a voice scaring you into becoming who you are, even though your inner critic doesn't think that that would make your parents happy. Mm -hmm. And you don't need a voice telling you don't even ask for that because they've already given you so much. Mm -hmm. And don't don't tell them that they really can't be with you be like that with you in your presence. They don't have to be with you. You may not be a good fit for them, but when they're with you, they really can't do the 45-minute synopsis of a movie that they have an idea for, not that, that they have any, you know? And it's over and over again, quieting the voice that says you can't be as you are and even bigger than you are and braver than you are and even wilder and having no clue what you want to do next, but knowing you're going to try because it's telling you you're going to fail. And everybody's yeah. going to be disappointed and freaked out and take away what they've already given you. That's the voice that the women I know heard. Mm -hmm. And we tried to get it to, uh, we tried to make it um, happy with us. And, and so we tried to keep our weight down because yeah. that was part of it. <laughs> and we tried to keep that critical voice happy with us. And what Neil's book is about is saying to the inner critic, oh, Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, because you brought me a long way. Why don't you go read in the library right now? Because I've got something I'm going to do for the next few hours. So mm -hmm. it's about it's not about having to be with people. It's like when we say in the deepest work we do, which is forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. The hardest work. My I as a Christian, I have to say, like, I'm very reformed and I have a terrible time with forgiveness. But we're not saying when you forgive someone, you have to start having lunch with them every week. Mm -hmm. We're not saying you ever have to have lunch with them again. Mm -hmm. We're not. We're saying that you're the one who's in prison. And if you do the deep dive with a spiritual mentor or a therapist or a group, you can do the healing around that that toxic, clenched feeling of non-forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I don't know if that made sense. No, I, love that. I love that. And I, I, well, Pete's question brought me to one of my questions that I wrote down, which basically was, can an inner critic disguise itself as an outer critic? Um, because I have more of the clear, like, okay, I'm, I'm terrible. Unless a hundred percent of the people are a hundred percent pleased with me a hundred percent of the time, right. I'm, I'm completely worthless. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I think and, everybody's got that. Yeah, yeah. And I think so, but in that case, going back to Pete's example of, of, he can't stand a dingus. We've we've uncovered. <laughs> That's the name of my book. We've uncovered. Will not stomach a dingus. We have uncovered this before, where um, you know one of the the messages that Pete's superego gave him was that it's unsafe, unacceptable to be unintelligent. Yeah. So then right. that gets projected onto other people so it, it yeah. oh my god it really seems like the inner critic because annie i'm with is, you i'm trying to forgive everybody but i'm like you don't know you're standing on a cliff and it's decaying under your feet and you're gonna die it's a fear yeah. for it's not them. it's not as ugly as it, it i'm being funny and, and trying to add color and stuff but like when i'm concerned for that person I'm like you're gonna die yeah like i'm gonna watch you die keep going please yeah. so it is kind of i'm not even gonna say deep down it's it's out of love. It, it is. There's some compassion there. Well, it seems like the, the below that layer of you can't be unintelligent because you're going to die is 
I can't be unintelligent. And this is where we get, uh, I think, a transparent look at my superego is I was teased out of it. I'm not saying it was great, but I was taught by others, come with us and you're you're lagging behind and you need to polish up and you need to get sparkly and you need to find talent and you need to find how you're special or you're going to die. And for me, death was a lot of the things you guys mentioned was like not being relevant, not being special, not being successful, all of those things. Not being so, included. Yeah. Not, oh my God, not yeah. being included. I couldn't yeah. handle it. So I yeah. started making these alliances with smarter people and, mm-hmm. and I'm glad, I'm grateful for, for that. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing as... How mentally unwell I am as we're, as we're talking. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. Like before I went to therapy, I had no idea I was codependent or how to end a relationship in a healthy and productive way or set up boundaries with family and people that I work with. But that's what therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and your self-understanding and your understanding of others, to be honest. Because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. I've always said talk therapy is greater than the sum of its parts and it's changed my life. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. Because the more you know about yourself, the more easily you can maneuver through life with less suffering and more clarity. Relationships, grief, loss, anxiety, you name it. Talking about it with a professional helps. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash weirdo today to get 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com slash weirdo. So it's interesting because uh, on our survival side, the fear that drives our survival is the fear of death, right? So instinctually, we have fear of death. On the social side, we don't actually have fear of death. We have fear of being thrown out of the tribe. So the social side and the surrogate in civilized life for a long time has been homelessness, right? And so that's being thrown out of the tribe. And so that's why we're, we see on TV every, you know, once a week, at least we see some image of homelessness, a reminder that uh, the culture wants you to stay productive so that you don't get thrown out of the tribe. Right. So, so just like we have an inner critic um, for our personal uh, set of the, of the rules, right? The same rules are exhibited on the nightly news so that we feel like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Similarly, we feel like we're going to hell in a handbasket. And the hell would be a disorganized life, which would be chaos. So chaos and homelessness are kind of the same idea to us. Yeah. I was going to say, I know homeless unhoused people that have homes. Yeah. You know what I mean? The the, yeah. the paralysis is still there. And the yeah. I, I'm not trying to be crass, but the impotence, meaning like the yeah. inability to affect mm-hmm. or influence their lives can be there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's even a part of me as we're sitting here, I'm like, it's true, Neil. It's true. Yeah, but it's not. I mean, the like fact it can is, happen. Like we need yeah, to. Yeah, but it's but it's you're not going to make a decision today 
that will inevitably take you down the route to chaos. You just mm -hmm. aren't. You are not making fateful decisions today. Mm -hmm. But your fear monger, which is your inner critic, it's a bully and it's a fear monger, is claiming, uh-oh, you're going through life making some good and some bad decisions, and those bad decisions are going to catch up with you. Don't recognize that as a perfectly moral person, I have morality within me. Mm -hmm. I am making sophisticated good versus good decisions. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. not making good versus bad decisions. Mm -hmm. If I recognize that I'm an 80% human, meaning I can only predict the future about 80%, that I have massive blind spots like every other human being does, mm -hmm. and the world keeps changing and, and morphing in front of me, and so I can't predict it 100%. 20% of my decisions are going to go wrong, right? Let's mm. say it's 80-20. We'll pretend that, that there's a magic number. <laughs> Whatever the number is, uh, some of my decisions will go wrong. But all that means is the world wasn't predictable in the way that I wanted to. I didn't make a bad decision except in retrospect, right? Mm. And by the way, my inner critic doesn't tell me that my superpower isn't in making good decisions. Mm -hmm. My superpower is my adaptability. Mm -hmm. Every time the world has gone sideways, the world has organized itself in such a way that I have been able to adapt to it. 100% mm -hmm. of my experiences have been in an organized world. It never, I have actually never in my personal life experienced chaos, right? Yeah. I mean, I can't, I don't even know that if, that in tripping, I have, I ever, when I, when I, you know, was a, I, I did hallucinogens as a kid. I don't think even then I ever actually experienced chaos. I'm not sure you can have an experience oh. that doesn't look like, even if it looks crazy, it looks like within its own conditions that it has a logic to it and that I can say a sentence at mm -hmm. the end of the experience that describes the experience. Hmm. Now, what was the what was your specific parent question about half hour ago? Oh, <laughs> maybe more. Um, it, it really was what can we do as parents to minimize the damage? I mean that in every way. Actually, will you tell us how to parent? Because <laughs> I think we yeah, might be I, I actually that. think that that's your job is not to interfere with the inner critic. Yeah. Your kid's inner critic is perfectly appropriate. Yeah, it's snarky. Yeah, you wish it could be more positive. Yeah, it's going to focus on things that your inner critic didn't focus on. Mm. Yeah, your kid's going to be crying because she wore the wrong dress and the other to the party and the other kids made fun of her, right? And you mm. wish that didn't happen to her. But mm. the fact is, you don't have any business interfering with, with your kid's inner critic. It's doing a job. Mm -hmm. It's a tough job. Civilization has lots of ridiculous rules and pitfalls, and it's got to learn the basics. And that's all that it's doing. Mm -hmm. What I tell parents is, and when your kid is 17, maybe do it the day they graduate from high school. Give them a diploma saying, by the way, you no longer need that bully in your head, and you mm -hmm. might want to do something about that. Oh. I want to say I want to ask Pete something. <laughs> Pete, when you heard the possibility that your five-year-old daughter may go to a birthday party and she got the dress wrong, and the other kids 
made fun the other girls made fun of her didn't you just lose your mind didn't you yeah. feel like yeah. like you were going to die and that that you couldn't go on yeah, yeah. It, it's it's you almost unbearable yeah it's i have unbearable. a hard time with my daughter just kill stress. yourself to avoid when that happens you yeah. know yeah. Yeah. it's awful Brutal. and i still can get a cellular memory of that with like 30 years ago when things happened where, that involves my boy when he's 35 now, but when he was little, where people dissed him or looked at him with bad eyes on him. And I can, it's funny because I'm almost 70 and I can still feel in my heart, in my soul heart, yeah. pain that that happened to him. Yeah. It's so deep. But I thought, oh. when you were listening, I thought, well, Val's a woman. So she's, she's, she's known chaos and she's, <laughs> she will hate it. But Pete will lose his mind. Yeah. He really can't handle it. And in fact, he takes her side all the time, even when she is in wrong. in the wrong out of yeah, the two. Yeah, like yeah, it's like, yeah. well, she scratched that kid's eye out. And he's like, well, <laughs> he was coming at He was coming yeah. at <laughs> the, the, the 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 problem only shows up later in life when that hoary old story about getting made fun of gets resurrected mm-hmm. you're not resurrecting it your inner critic is resurrecting it so to to force you to think that you're still a six-year-old mm-hmm. for no other purpose than for it to stay in its job mm-hmm. so the superego is far more the inner critic is far more interested after 17 Mm-hmm. It's already given all the lessons it could possibly give. It's far more interested in keeping its job yeah. than in serving you. So right. in internal family systems, this would be, I didn't know about internal family systems until I wrote this book. And then I just got slammed with all these people from IFS telling me how it either fit or didn't fit. But in internal family systems, they call this an unattached burden, mm-hmm. right? It is a part of you, they think. I. There, I disagree. I think it's a parasite. By the time you're 17, it's got no business being a part of you. But it's a part of you that no longer serves any any beneficial purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, mm-hmm. the 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 only reason I feel so terrified when my kid is going through that experience, right, mm-hmm. is that I think that that experience will dog them through life. The same way that experienced has dogged me through life. And yeah. so I'm actually going to mainly notice the horrors that that are that are similar to the ones that I went through as a kid. And I won't even notice that, oh God, those aren't that kid's permanently lodged stories that are resurrected by the inner critic through their lifetime. They're a completely different set. Right. right. Just the wow. same way, you know, I project all of my insecurities onto my kid and try to protect them from them i project my stories i see soup for me (laughs) i'm i'm thinking about a time when i was you know it's a it's a it's it's a lowercase t trauma memory for me i was probably like 12 years old 11 years old i don't know i'm bad with age we went to get ice cream and i wore my ninja outfit i had this all black ninja outfit that i loved and i went and I'm from Boston, which makes it worse. And there's a bunch of knuckleheads there and they're older and they made fun of me. And yeah. that was a really rough uh, moment. Yeah. And, and I'm catching myself, and this is what's surprising, is that I'm catching myself being like, oh, that doesn't really serve me, uh, but there is something useful to this day mm-hmm. where I 
when I'm getting dressed or when I'm going to a, <laughs> I don't want to defend it. I'm just saying like yeah. that sucked. Yeah. And, but if I just deleted that parasite at 17, maybe I would dress in all yellow, like the guy from curious George and be more free. But no, I don't know but, but remember, so all of our shameful or trauma with a small T memories, right? Act as if we didn't adapt to them. Two things. One is that very same day, probably a half hour later, you were playing with your friends. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And just having a good old time, right? That's the second true. thing is you never wore that ninja suit again out in public, right? Yeah. You adapted perfectly well. And you were old enough by 12 to have the pattern recognition to go, oh, I got to watch what I wear in different circumstances. And you're perfectly good at that without someone saying, remember when you were 12? Remember? That's what shame is. Shame is remember when? And it's acting like you didn't adapt. Well, you did. Right. I love that, right. Neil. That's yeah. great. I, little Pete got the lesson. It's a stinky <laughs> lesson. I hate it. I wish we didn't live in a world like that, mm -hmm. but we do. And I did adapt. And I love that you're you're absolutely right. I bet 15, well, I'm a sensitive boy. I'm gonna say maybe an hour later I was I was fine. Yeah. And it does reheat that as if I'm a total, to use my own word, a dingus. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Val, why that. don't you talk a little bit about some of the exercises that that Neil meant? Because these were very interesting to me, asking who's in charge, what would right. happen if I was in charge? That and maybe Neil, okay. you can. Right. Why don't I do it with you? Why don't I, Pete, I'll do it with you. Does that, That's what I was, that was what I was hoping. When yeah, I yeah. Okay. So um, when you hear, what what are your kind of central inner critic messages? What are the words used against you? Uh, you're too much. Yeah. You're overbearing. Yeah. Um, if people, specifically my anger, if people knew that you're angry, you are a werewolf. Yeah. Um, you're faking it. Uh, Good. They that's don't, enough. That's enough. Okay. Yeah. You don't have to expose all of your terrible character. That's, <laughs> at one time, right? that's actually one of them. You don't have to expose all. Of your yeah. There we go. There we go. Um, when you hear those words, do they have the inflections of anybody from when you were a child? Yeah, probably. And by the way, listen, people who are listening to this can do this themselves, can follow along and kind of I'm I'm taking him into an exercise that has steps and you can follow the steps along. But go ahead. I I, I say this uh with love and, and respect for the good my parents gave me. And it's a blend. It's my mom and it's my dad. Okay. Okay. Don't so be a weirdo, don't be a loser, yeah. is yeah. my father. Yeah. Uh, you're ridiculous. That's outrageous, is my mother. Yeah, there you go. And when you hear this voice. From what part of your physical geography, your body geography, does it emanate from? Where is it coming from? I feel it a lot in my throat. I in think. your throat. Okay. So I want you to pull it out of your throat and okay. extend your right arm um, or your left arm. I don't care, yep. whichever one, out in front of you. And so your palm is facing you like this, okay. right? And I'm going to feed you, oh, first thing, um, often what will happen right here is an object, creature, or thing will appear in your palm. And tell me if an object, creature, or thing appears in your palm. So just look at your palm. You pulled your inner critic out of yourself, and you're holding it in your palm. Uh, yeah, do this with your eyes open. Yeah. It, it's got a... Uh... 
it it looks a little bit like the mascot for the Boston Red Sox. I don't know what his name is, but he's a green monster. Okay, green monster. So call it green, greeny. We'll call it greeny. Sure. Um, and uh, it has a face, I gather. Yeah. And what's the expression on the face? Well, it doesn't really make any sense, but it's kind of a goofy mascot face, to be honest. A goofy mascot face. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to feed you some questions. I want you to ask Greeny these questions aloud, one by one. Sure. It will answer the question. I want you to repeat aloud its words when it answers the question. Okay. Yeah. So the first question is, uh, Greeny, um, when did you take charge? So you ask it aloud. Greeny, when did you take charge? It said seven. When you were seven? Is that yeah. what it said? Okay. Um, who put you in charge? Who put you in charge? You did. Okay. Why are you still in charge? Why are you still in charge? Hello? Why are you still in charge? Uh, to make you not be embarrassed. To okay. protect you. Um, I'd like to take charge for a while. Is that okay? I would like to take charge for a while. Is that okay? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. W do you think something bad will happen if I take charge? Would something bad happen if I took charge? He looks kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> it's a yes or no question. Tell him yes or no. Do you Yes or no. Would I be okay if I took charge? No. Okay, what bad do you think will happen to me if I take charge? What bad would happen to me if I took charge? I would fall flat on my face. You would fall flat on your face, isn't yes. that what you said? Okay. I would, yeah. Okay. Um, and I'd, I, Actually, it's worse than that. I'd be uh, exposed, naked, and afraid in the, in the rain. Yeah, okay, but remember, you're putting it in its words, so yeah. I want to keep clear the distinction between subject and object. So it's an object talking to you. So it said you would be exposed naked in the You rain. would be exiled. Right. You would be alone. Okay. okay. What makes you think that I can't run the show myself now? What makes you think that I can't run the show myself now? Because this is how we've always done it. Okay. It's important to me to start running the show. I'd like to run this experiment. Will you get out of the way? It's important to me as an experiment that I run the show. Would you get out of the way? It laughed and said, yes. Um, I'm sorry. Is that a passive aggressive? Yes. Or will sorry, you passive aggressive right now? And he said, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, are you worried something bad will happen to you if I take charge? Are you worried something bad would happen to you if I took charge? He said no. Okay. So you're not worried that you'll be out of a job? He says no, because you'll come back. Oh, I see. Um, all I want you to do is to step aside and see whether I can take charge. And if I can, I won't annihilate you. All I'm asking is that you would step aside as an experiment and let me take charge. And if you can do that, I won't annihilate you. And he looks sad and he says, okay. Okay. Um, isn't it tiring running the show all the time? Aren't you exhausted running the show all the time? Yes. How would you like semi-retirement as my occasional ethical advisor? 
<laughs> I would like to offer you semi-retirement as my occasional ethical advisor. He's really sad now. He's sort okay. of slumped and sitting on the ground. Yeah. And he's like, okay. Okay. And um, if I succeed in this, you will have fulfilled your charter to turn me from a child into an adult. If I succeed at this, you will have fulfilled your charter to turn me into a, from a child into an adult. Wouldn't that be good? Mm, it's really sad. <laughs> and I want to thank you for saving my life when I was a kid. And I want to thank you for saving my life when I was a kid. Mm. It's really melty now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and put it back into your neck now. So, wow. so what okay, was I'm going to start recording now. I think we should. <laughs> that was really beautiful. Wow. It's, it's, and I, I'm feeling a lot of emotion. It's, I'm not, uh, a rigid or, or I'm just letting you know it's it's having an, an impact on me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, a lot um, of people a lot right. of people get teary at this point because mm -hmm. it's been a long partnership. And it really did save your life when you were a kid. And yeah. It deserves to be appreciated for that. Yeah. And it it likes its job and wishes it could keep its job. And you're giving it the old heave ho. And so there's a sadness to that. Mm. The weirdest thing about this exercise is that they pretty much all answer the questions the exact same way. They all have the same character. They mm. all have the same snarkiness. They all have the same uh, desire to avoid difficult answers. They're all more interested in their own survival than in your success, right, yeah. in the end. And mm -hmm. they're all pretty simple bullying creatures. Mm -hmm. is yours is no different magnitude from uh, Valerie's or from Annie's or mine or anybody's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird that there are these energies. This is very in line with my spiritual practice is what I was going to say, that there are these energies that we developed. It's just, a, you know, a web of memories, experience, instincts. What's strange about these, you know, mosaics that we call our ego or we call our superego is that they do have a drive apart from their purpose, just a, like a self-generating drive yes. to exist. That yeah. is an incredibly strange phenomenon. Isn't it? I mean, here's a facsimile of a being mm. who sits as a kind of simple-minded, necessary, very limited um, kind of paper-thin thing mm -hmm. that just barks the same things over and over again. And it's got a survival instinct. Mm -hmm. How could a non-being, a non-sentient being, or yeah. forget sentience, how can a non-live being have a survival instinct? It's very it, weird. It, it, it yeah. reminds me of ideas. You know, you had an idea for this book, Annie, you're writing your 20th book. You know, Stephen Pressfield talks about you go for a walk and then you come back and you've reorganized the book, meaning it's almost like the idea has its own mm. desire and its own drive apart from your conscious mind. So we're aware of this phenomenon in other areas of our life. Some of them are useful, mm. but as I'm talking to you, like you're really pulling, it's beautiful. You're pulling out what I would call highest self Pete, mm. which isn't really concerned with whether or not someone's humiliating themselves. Cause I, I can recognize that that's not the death that I think it is. I think there's, yeah. I think Al-Qaeda is right behind the door and is going to behead yeah. them. Yeah. And you're helping me realize it's yes, no, or maybe. Mm -hmm. You're helping me realize that I have a 
I have a thing that that is that's a little bit off the rails. That's that's still trying to steer the ship, and it's not helpful. And it's curating your whole personality, right? So you had asked about identities. It's curating and keeping the scaffold mm. of your um, shiny self, your your bodyguard, um, uh, uh, complete and maintained and and correct, and all of its different. Uh, 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 beliefs that um, that you need to be protected in a certain way to expose yourself to the world. Mm. And as it moves to the side, part of what moves to the side is that whole scaffolding, right? And so you have uh, a lovely, probably divine, um, authentic self that would never talk to you that way. And that is by nature kind and generous, right? And it's been going all the time, right? It's been down there. It's usually, it's got a kind of default to goofiness rather than a default to fear, right? Mm -hmm. And it's been crowded out by this other voice. And as this other voice goes and your identities start to crumble and your anxiety starts to crumble and your fear and distrust of, and all the problems of living next door to strangers start to seem more manageable, and don't need to be as closely managed, I mean, more manageable in the sense, more acceptable, right? Mm -hmm. Then um, a lovely divine self just arrives. So so to me, and 90% of spiritual work is destructive, is getting this voice out of the way. And whatever shows up is fine. I don't do any intention work or affirmation work or any of those sorts of things. It just never dawned on me to to do that. All of my work is to get the damn voice out of my head. And whatever shows up is has the attributes of divinity and the attributes of higher consciousness or whatever you want to call God or or seamlessness right. or if we take away everything that can be taken away, what's what's left is what can't be taken away, which is divine. And and it makes sense because what it's constantly doing is creating a filter with the world, right? So my inner critic wants me to be defended, and so it puts up a guard. If I remove a guard, I'm smack dab intimate with the world. I'm not separated from the world. I don't have to think about, is it a non-dual world or a dual world? Who cares if I'm intimate with it? And the only thing preventing me from being intimate, this is where it's really cool to me that the Eastern traditions all notice that seeing the world, seeing yourself as unseparated and as being dragged along by the world as is, and that that's acceptable, something we would normally call determinism in the West, doesn't create fatalism, doesn't create nihilism, quite the opposite. You end up intimate with the world. And you're intimate, being intimately engaged means you're fascinated by what's right in front of your face and fascinated by your memories and fascinated by your imagination and fascinated by all sorts of things. I don't become a nerd because I'm not defending myself and I'm not thinking about being productive. Hmm. I just become productive in my fascination with the world, which I think is all that creativity is, is just puzzling out things in the world that we're seeing. Mm. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to to Pete. I knew you were going to be teary when you did that work because it's so deep. 
it's so cellular and profound. It's just your little boy's heart, you know, it's your, and it's your projecting into your little girl's heart. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I have OCD and about 30 years ago, I've been sober seven years, I guess. Um, I started um, working with hearing about this guy north of us who worked with OCD people by helping them identify the boo voice that keeps me because I had to when I was a kid, I had to turn light switches on 17 times, you know, and I counted mm-hmm. and I had really clean hands and stuff. And I've always had that. And um, but he said something that was so profound. He said, when you were a child, if you didn't have the boo voice, you had no other consistent companion, mm-hmm. you know. And when I heard Neil start talking about my inner critic, which has been very shaming. Now, in recovery, we say shame means should have already mastered everything, you know, <laughs> which you haven't. So you, when you do, when you exhibit that you haven't and you screwed, you made a mistake, you've screwed up something in a minor way, you feel that uh, that flush of you know, warm blood. But when I heard that this without the boo voice and without the inner critic, because my parents were not well together at all, they were very unhappy. And I had an older brother and had a younger brother I was trying to raise without the boo voice and the inner critic, you know, in that long bony finger coming down from the sky saying, "Uh Oh, think this through, Mm -hmm. you know, I would have not had a consistent, I didn't have a consistent sense of God. I didn't have a consistent sense that there was anything, but you know, this kind of Roz Chass character, if you know that cartoonist with this skinny little child with her arms at her side, just kind of gaping at mm-hmm. at all the danger in the world, like just behind the curtains. Mm-hmm. And that's what I felt like. And it wasn't until that first thing and then the first time I did the inner critic and I said, oh, it's you. It was I really felt like a Helen Keller when she's out in the yard with Annie Sullivan and she learns the word for water and Annie Sullivan signs it into her hand, you know, and then she runs and she touches a rock and, and Annie Sullivan signs rock because everywhere I went after doing this work, I went, oh, it's you with my body what I look like with my thighs with my voice with the sound of my own voice with the the way I present with the you know on and I was going oh it's you oh it's you and I and it 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 will do anything to stay alive which is why it's so brilliant in Neil's work to say to it I'll never get rid of you don't worry there's a great reading light in the library in a really cozy chair you go sit there and I'll come get you if I need you Mm -hmm. I like the part where you asked how exhausting because it's exhausting it's It's exhausting I am exhausted they're all exhausted they're all they're all really sick of the job but they don't know how to end it and we think we're exhausted with life, but we're not. It's it's psychically exhausting for it. Right. It, it kind of like economic trickle down. It is like we yeah. think we're exhausted with us ourselves, which we're not. And that's a that's you know, one of the coolest things about watching people do what we just did, right, Pete, is how often people say, I always thought that was me. Why didn't someone tell me it wasn't? Yeah. Mm. yeah, and that's where that's where when your kids are seventeen, that's your job. Tell yeah. them that's not you, and yeah. it served its purpose. Yeah. I love that yeah. so yeah. much. Sorry. Oh no, I don't. You go ahead because no, well, the, the, the real world implication of this, what's exhausting to my 
my everything, not just my superego, is that I've noticed that in human family systems, is that right? Internal family. Internal family systems. I'm just so tired. I was watching like a, it doesn't matter what it was. Well, it does matter. It was a, it was like a, a Tony Robbins and he's talking to people about how to like change their lives. There's 3000 people there. And my voice, I just go right to like, I believe that Tony is successful, but how many of these idiots are going to do any of this? And like, why would they even be at this thing? You know what I mean? Like I get so, and that's exhausting. No wonder I don't want to hang out with people. I told Val that when I'm at my lowest, I'll be in line at a Starbucks at the airport and I'm just slinging shit on everybody. And, and I'm doing active things to identify it and stop it, not just to be a good person, but because it's tiring, but you're helping me see that I'm going like, don't you see you're in trouble? You're going to die. I think I'm going to die if I'm like you. So I'm going to really highlight how I'm not like you by making fun of your pants and your stupid hair and the way you talk and all that stuff. (laughs) So I'm pushing it out to highlight the difference between me and them. I'm not them. I'm this. Well, also, it's so painful to get in touch with your self-loathing that you get uh, external people to carry it in their backpack instead of dealing with it. And of course, you have self-loathing. The culture raises you to have self-loathing. Culture Mm -hmm. raises you to self-destruct and you get aware of it and then you accept it. I mean, in recovery, there are these three A's. One is awareness. I'm doing it again. I'm I'm completely judging this guy who may have just lost his wife or his job or whatever. And I'm in contempt, but I'm actually the only person I'm ever in contempt of is me. So mm-hmm. I'm aware of it. And then the, the second A is the acceptance. Of course I have that. I'm exhausted. I have jet lag. I hate airports. That's yeah, that's right? Val helps with that voice. And you just have to accept it. Of course you have that. We're going to have it this side of the grave. We get over it. We break the trance sooner and sooner. And then the third thing is the action. What's a loving action? You say to the guy, I love your hat. Yeah. Or whatever. But I'm going to have to go in a minute. But I wanted before I go, you can have Neil. I'm (laughs) I'm hungry and peckish. But um, of course you are. You haven't eaten. And that's going to be with us until we die. And our loving action is to let you go. (laughs) I know. I know. And it's like a one person refugee camp right now. But I'm going to (laughs) go. But you can have Neil for as long as you want. But I just wanted to answer Val's question of how to be a parent. You Great. Know? Thank you. Okay. I'm how dying to parent. To know. Okay. Okay. Good. You've come to the right place. <laughs> Perfect. I have been helping raise a grandchild who lives on our property who's, who's 14 and a half now. So I've done it twice. The first thing you do is you get on the path of radical self-love. The hugest gift you give your child is to do the radical self-love. When you're exhausted, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, it spells halt, you notice it and you deal with it and you don't project it onto this poor 40-pound child. You know, you deal with it. The radical self-love, you get yourself a cup of tea. You do what you would do for me, Val. You say, do you like baths? Can I make you a hot bath? You don't have the time. Can I get you a cup of tea? Do you want to go to Target with me? Let's go to Target. <laughs> Let's just go spend $45 each, okay? The most creative, brilliant, you know, you do yeah. radical self-love. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, and I've written a lot about this, is you start to deal with your own perfectionism. And that, as I've said, is the voice of the oppressor. 
Mm-hmm. It's the boy, it's the enemy. In the Christian tradition, we call it the enemy. Mm-hmm. And it will keep you vexed and mentally ill your entire life. And you can do some healing around that. And you do it with the inner critic work. Because mm-hmm. the inner critic work insists on the perfectionism. And if you don't do it perfectly, again, you're going to be beheaded right? You're going to, or your kid's going to turn out to be a school shooter, probably, right? So you do with your own therapist, with the EMDR, with your group, you do the work on your perfectionism, you start to notice it, oh, it's Mm. you. And you, you let your child see you make messes and mistakes and screw up and you let them see that and you go, oh my God, it's such a mixed grill being human here. And you say, see, I made a mistake, but you know what? It's not going to kill me. Let's go get a frozen yogurt. Okay. And try to shake this off. Mm. Now, the third, yeah, the main, so the main thing that we do for our children is we do our own healing, yeah. right? With the perfectionism, with the inner critic mm-hmm. and with radical self-love as the past by intention, we're on when we wake up. Mm. Right. And then mm-hmm. that, because otherwise I know you're fine, but I have never was. And I kind of ran around trying to get spillover from other people's cups because I thought everybody else's cups were filled and that mine was so empty. And I get like spillovers. Oh, and, and it's, it's insane. It keeps it fills you with like cottage cheese with Swiss cheese holes because yeah. right. You do the self-love and the self-nourishment and the self-respect. And you help your kids learn that it's an inside job. It's not out there. Mm. And you have a cup, then you can offer it around. It becomes quantum and you become part of the healing of the community and the planet. Mm. And the last thing is, this saved me. And I had a kid who got into drugs, you know, who's got, praise God, almost 13 years clean and sober. But you know what helped me then was other parents. And there were always some parents, like Sam was a slow reader, and there was this other mother, I wrote about it in something or other, who would bring it up. Well, we have some books that Alex is done with. We know that Sam is a, it's like, well, thank you. You know, I hope that you're killed later today (laughs) badly by like a dog. I hope you're killed by dogs, multiple dogs today later. But instead, you want the books. Right, yeah. that your slow loser child can actually read. And, <laughs> and what I did was I found other parents every step of the way. And my son is brilliant. He just wasn't great at stuff they grade for, right? He was inventive. He's, as you know, he's an artist, he's creative, he's a visionary, um, he's good at math. And you find other parents who will tell you the truth and who won't say, oh, we're just so pleased with young Bess because she is the best kid. And you find other parents who say, "Who you know, because the whole system works because we're not all nuts on the same day. And so you find a trusted person. And I'll say it again. Laughter is carbonated holiness. And you find another parent and a mother you trust or a father. And you say, do you want to have a cup of coffee? And you say, can I tell you my kid, I think he's going to have to be, uh, you know, it's going to, he's going to have to work at, you know, at, at, at the um, Jiffy Lube. He's going to have to work at Jiffy Lube. And they'll go, oh no, I was there the other day. I was there the other day. And this is what I did. And I think it's not true, but I know what you're talking about. And you know what you can do then? You start to laugh and you're on sacred soil. And you also remember that, that some days are just too long and that we're a little 
funny around the edges still. And you go back, you do the work on yourself, you do the inner healing, you start to give that opposite, your contribution. You let your child see that we make mistakes and that it's not a big deal. We bounce back. You can feel terrible. It's good to cry. Crying is a beautiful, heat, moisturizing, hydrating thing. And you, that's what I've learned over... 35 years of been of doing this mm. find the other mothers find the other parents yeah you know, it's funny but i do have to go i really love you both and i hope i can see you in person sometime we yes, hope so Valerie, i just long to be with you i love you too people but it's like a girl thing yeah it's hard to explain thank <laughs> you annie that was such thank a gift you. i'm so glad that was recorded you. but here's neil okay I was thinking about now that I I have four grown children, and so now was of course I have great advice for young parents because I know all the things that I got wrong because mm. they tell me right. Mm. <laughs> but the but the um, a couple of things that I've learned way too late. I learned way after my kids were fully launched. Um, one was that because as a parent, I kept looking at it as a job, right? I was diagnosing things and getting the kid fixed here and there. And there was there was there was this big job of a kid. I'm not sure I ever did a very good job of focusing on what that kid wanted from me. Mm. And in the end, somebody told me this, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And I worked it back through my childhood and, and I went, wow. It makes a whole lot of sense, which was all I wanted, and I'm going to use um, cultural stereotypes. I'm not, I don't, I don't subscribe to the cultural stereotypes, but their cultures are conservative. And so the rules are conservative. If we, if we work with the rules and change them, that takes a lot of time. But so I'm going to stick, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with the cultural stereotypes that children look for their mother to tell them that they're okay inside. Mm. And they look for their father to tell them that they're okay outside. Wow. And that even, even with my adult children, insofar as they see me as a parent still, mm. they look to me to basically remind them that they are okay as is and that I like them as is. Mm. And that's, that's weird, right? That yeah. it's that simple. But I, I grew up with a, my mother was mentally ill and gave me the message inadvertently. She didn't mean to, but she gave me the message that I was a bad seed. So I didn't have the message that I was okay inside. Yeah. My father, who had no psychological background, gave me that message, right? Yeah. And the, he did it in a really funny way that I only found out about when he when he um he was getting to the end of his life and i i interviewed him for for a memoir to to do a memoir of him and as i was interviewing him he said you know i never told you or your brothers in any particular way that i was proud of you oh. and i thought back and i thought huh i never noticed that and he said, the reason I did that was that I thought that if I told you I was proud of you about something, you would think that in some other way you weren't, right. I wasn't proud of you. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah. If I say this was delicious, maybe you'll think the other things you cooked weren't delicious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I realized, and then I I asked my 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 two brothers, I asked them, did you ever get the sense that dad thought there was anything wrong with you? Mm. And both my brothers said, God, no. Yeah. And we 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 had this really secure confidence that one person in our family mm. thought thought we were okay wow. as is, yeah. and he could get mad at us for for getting in certain kinds of trouble, but not very much, right? Mm. Mm. And even when he was doing that, I didn't feel like I was bad, or even that I had done a particularly bad thing. I felt like I had I had broken a rule. That was kind of it. Right. Wow. And every and there were it was always I knew what the boundaries were with him. Mm-hmm. They were they were fairly loose though. And mm-hmm. there was never a sense that by breaking a rule or doing something wrong or not being a certain way that I was disappointing him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope you said all of this. This is great. Yeah, that's Isn't like that, the best was, you can I, hope for. I wish I had also, known that. But it also means when did how many people when their kids are 10 years old say, you know what I love about you? Just your goofy self, your Mm -hmm. default, goofy, childlike self. Right. Because that's what I love about me. Right. Mm -hmm. If I want to see who I am in default, Mm -hmm. it's embarrassing. Right. I'm a willy nilly, goofy three year old. Right. That's Mm -hmm. my default core self. Right. Uh-huh. And I'm not talking about an inner child. I'm talking about something far more fundamental than a psychological version of myself that is reactive to things that has happened to me. Yeah. I'm talking about my default sense of myself as love is a kid rolling down a hill and if a mm-hmm. girl, a girl with an easy bake oven. And mm-hmm. that's really hard to yeah. find and engage. And mm-hmm. because, boy, did I have to work to cover that up. Because that's not acceptable in an adult. And that's mm. not acceptable in my peers as a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about a learned introvert and like all the, like I feel like, and a learned achiever too. Yeah. Like I, I think I wasn't really that way in my wiring, but I was like, this is my escape plan. Yeah. And so I, I relate to everything you're saying. Because when I take mushrooms or something, I, I remember that boy, or not even that boy, that that true self. And I'm like, yeah. I want to roll here. Hill. Yeah, yeah. Bake oven. that reminds me there's an uh i said to leela one day she had had like a big tantrum that was just so brutal you know we like started with the trying to be like it, it's okay to have big feelings yes i'm here and then like they last you know 45 minutes and by the end of it we're like all right let's just be done with this <laughs> you know so i just was like really carrying the sense that i had failed at the tantrum and you know we were tr- sort of talking about it the night that night and i was like you know mama loves you when you're angry i love you oh. when i'm angry oh. i love you when you're sad i love you when you're happy and she went and you you'd love me if i killed you <laughs> And I was like, oh, Jesus. Um, (laughs) Yes, but please don't. Speaking of that, too, I was reading the actual part about being rigged to the good, which I totally agree with. And it's something that I love specifically about your work because you mentioned it in Shapes of Truth, too, I think. Just the 
the argument that we are rigged towards good and that the society is actually improving in all of these ways that we don't yeah. focus on. Um, but I was reading that part about the child giving away the sandwich. And I heard Leela say to Pete in that moment, she was homesick last night, yesterday. And she said, I wish someone else was sick instead of me. <laughs> like, not, not a great moment. <laughs> That's great. Or we'll be eating pancakes and she goes, these are all mine. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, can I have some? That was your shame. But when she was three, she would have given that those pancakes yeah, away. We <laughs> We're already working towards that. Do you have anything yeah. else? Val wrote down wonderful, thoughtful questions. I, I want to make sure you you got your due. Oh, I I did have one last question that I wrote down, but then it came up when you did the exercise with Pete was have you run into, in all of these people that you've done that beautiful exercise with, have you run into any super egos that won't budge, that will not give a a, a yes? And what do you do when that happens? Um, yeah, some of them will get stuck on one question, right? Mm -hmm. And I just, if it looks like it's stuck on that question, I move on to the next question. And so... Mm -hmm. um, the the point of the exercise isn't to resolve anything. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't actually matter whether mm -hmm. the superego, the inner critic is um, particularly cooperative, right? Yeah. What matters is that the that the host, the 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 subject, the person who's doing it is always flabbergasted that mm -hmm. that's possible to actually separate it out as an objective thing and have a dialogue with it. And that mm -hmm. possibility becomes the root of the only homework which I give people. And it's mm -hmm. the only homework that matters, period, mm -hmm. which is to simply catch it and go, that's you. Because mm -hmm. every time you catch it and go, that's you, you're recognizing the words that it used, which means Instead of it hiding and being subvocal, it's now vocal. You're now actually hearing the actual words that it's using when you say, oh, that's you. And once you've heard a thousand times it say something like you're you're unlovable, right? Mm -hmm. It just loses its um power. Mm -hmm. It's just like it's so stupid. Right. Yeah. It's so circular. It's so ridiculous that you would actually believe that you needed somebody to tell you that in order to make decisions in life, mm. that that just kind of it's like a vampire. You're just bringing it to the surface. Wow. And the second thing that it's telling you is that that's not you, that you have an authentic narrator and that authentic narrator, which speaks in sentences. Right. Is actually eventually what happened with me happens to a lot of people is that even while the tape loop is going, that the inner critic uh, uh, starts off with a triggering event, mm -hmm. I also find I have access to an authentic narrator who's who's kind of looking over and going, huh, that's interesting. It's mm -hmm. running again, right? Mm -hmm. And what that allows me is once the tape runs out, instead of fretting about it and 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 
what the Buddhists call the second arrow, instead of delivering the second arrow, that there's a the triggered reaction is over, but now the consequence of the triggered reaction is more important than the triggered reaction. Instead, I'm able to just stop and go, huh, look at that. That's running again. Instead of hitting yourself with a second arrow. Is that am I Yeah, that? yeah. Because most people will go, Oh, I'm a bad person for getting angry at Annie. Wow, right? that's, that's I'm like, oh, look at that. I got angry again. Um, how often do I do that? And I'll mm -hmm. ask myself that. And if I go, oh, that's a circumstance that shows up twice a year, I'll go, ah, big deal. I can mm -hmm. we're all hurting each other's feelings all the time. I can live with that. If I'm like, oh, that's weird. That's that's happened three times in the last week. I guess there's a corner of an issue that I haven't haven't cleaned up. I've got to go do some work. Right. Wow. And the work is just, you know, let's find the old hoary story that claims that I'm in danger unless I protect this piece of me and I got to go back into it. Wow. Like I had a, my central story. I got I got I come from a know-it-all family. And so I got this app of being a know-it-all kind of installed in me when I was young. Mm -hmm. And I did tons and tons of work on it. It was kind of my uh, part of my central story work. And and I got free of it and I didn't have to be a know-it-all anymore. And I still had all my intelligence and all my know-it-all stuff, but it was for, I could use it playfully instead of to, you know, make myself prominent or make myself heard or make myself mm. believed or whatever. Mm. And then I made a huge mistake. I went back to school. And <laughs> there was a form of know-it-allness that school has that's different from every other form of know-it-allness. Right. And I would, and I wrote about this in my first book, and I would go every day after class, I would, I would, I, in class, I just, they were all seminars. And so it was all about talking. And so I would hear my know-it-all voice coming up and I would see my feeling of urgency to get into the conversation. And I would feel like, oh, I've already talked too much. I've already talked too much. Why am I talking? Uh -huh. And I, every single day, I'd come out of class and go sit next to Annie and go, I hate myself. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, but at the same time, I knew, okay, maybe I'll never go back to school again. I'll be smart, but maybe I will go back to school again one day. Mm -hmm. This is worth working on. And so mm -hmm. I worked on it and watched it and working on it and watching it was basically sitting down next to Annie and saying, I hate myself. Mm -hmm. And she'd say, why? And she'd know exactly what my words would be. And mm -hmm. I would talk about being a know-it-all in class. And I would talk about being a know-it-all. And I would talk about my family of know-it-alls. And I would mm -hmm. talk about how all my defensive structure around know-it-alls. And it took, it was a rigid one. It took six or seven months and I, and I got free of it. And the last couple of months of school were just a blast. Mm -hmm. I had, a, I was, I got to be invisible in class and mm -hmm. talk at the same time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That does There's sound so like a huge here. relief. Yeah. There <laughs> is so much hope. Yeah. You're delivering a lot of hope and a lot of life-changing things. Yeah. And I think the book is really important and i'm glad we, we we had this chance to talk about it mm -hmm. it's it's awesome yeah it's a real it's a real gift because not only does everybody experience this but i i think it feels like everybody experiences this voice most of the time like yeah. most of the day yeah. 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 so it's uh it's definitely worth addressing and i'm saying, never yeah what life is like without it. <laughs> and the work that I present is, is um, 
simple, but it's not easy because it requires tons of repetitions. You just yeah. have to go, oh, that's you, oh, oh that's you. over and over again. You know, when you I'm yeah. hating yeah. on every single person, I'll just be like, oh, that's you, because that's definitely my strategy, mm-hmm. is I don't spend <laughs> a lot of time directly hating myself, but boy, do I hate so many people Your in, traits in an average and day. other people. My own traits and other people, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, this was a life change. I, I love this. Yeah. And I'm excited to finish the book and people definitely need to check it out. Yeah. And thank you for taking the time. Annie is somewhere oh. eating ants on a log voraciously. <laughs> and thank you so much for, for inviting me. It's lovely talking to you. And, it's always wonderful talking yes. to you both. Thank you for taking the time. Mm-hmm. I love your intimacy. I love how you, I love how you look at each other and address each other. There's nothing soupy <laughs> or kind of, kind of put on about it. It's, oh, it's all just that. really, and humor, as you know, is the trick, right? We're all complaining all day long. Everybody yes. is, right? <laughs> but it's all acceptable if the complaint is hidden within Oh my God. A, a, a little bit of playfulness, comedy, whatever, right? All jokes yeah. are about the absurdity of the difficulty of life, right? Yeah. Just That's like all right. complaints are about the absurdity of the difficulty of life. And there's compassion there, but we don't see it. Um, uh yeah. Uh, unless we're willing to be lighthearted about it. Mm, yeah, yeah so. thank you. That is that's the trick in parenting too, and how crazy that <laughs> <Yeah>. is. <Yeah>. And <laughs> how funny kids it. are, and how funny they're just goofy. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Second arrow too. I'm never going to forget that. Yeah. Well, Neil, at the end of our show, we always have the guests. You might remember this little talk about absurdity. We have the guests say, keep it crispy. It's just the sign off. If you would say, keep it crispy and everybody check out Better Days, Tame Your Inner Critic. Now, uh, that, that'll be our sign off. Keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny having I know somebody. I don't know so why. Every, every, yeah, somebody so intelligent. I know it all. Either. And I love that you asked no questions about what it means. I, we don't even know. So, <laughs> Thank you for doing this, Neil. And thank Annie for us. And we hope to see you again uh, sometime soon. Yeah. Thank see you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.